0: all right morning everyone that's good to see all of you why don't you go ahead and open your bibles to luke chapter 13 finish this chapter this morning on sunday mornings we're working our way through luke's gospel verse by verse and we find ourselves in luke 13 verses 31 to 35 we started these verses last week and we'll finish them this morning go ahead and stand with me for the reading of god's word please Verse thirty four, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you are not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, thank you for these verses and the wonderful window that were given into Christ's heart, I think it reveals such a compassion for his people. And people that, as we talked about last week, had been uh, horrendously wicked toward you. They had slaughtered your prophets throughout the Old Testament, slaughtered the apostles in the New Testament, and then obviously called out for the crucifixion of your son at the end of the Gospels. And so we see um, how they deserved such a harsh or severe response, such a strong rebuke from Christ, yet he reached out to them so compassionately and so lord i pray that we could be given uh, this insight into christ's heart to see his compassion for sinners but at the same time see what uh, see the need for us to uh, submit our lives to christ to surrender to him repent of our sins and put our our faith in him Uh, and i think that's shown here in these verses i pray lord that i would be able to do justice to the uh, verses not just here in luke 13 but the others that you've laid on my heart and this would be a time that you meet with your people as much as i've studied this week lord that really they would hear from you and you'd in a sense move me out of the way and so thank you for each person you gathered here lord you knew who would be here and that blessed me in my studying you knew what they needed to hear and the work that needs to be done in their lives lord let this be a time of worship for all of us one that pleases you And we pray this in jesus name amen 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 now because we read scripture instead of being able to listen to it we're forced to guess how things are said or to be more specific regarding this morning's verses because we're forced to read Jesus' words versus hearing the way that he said them to the Jews. We're forced to guess how he said them. Now, in verse 34, which is as far as we got last week, when Jesus says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, considering um, what I just prayed or what we talked about last week, that the Jews murdered the prophets throughout the Old Testament, which jesus mentioned here that jesus knew they were going to murder the apostles throughout uh, church early church history and then um, you know most severely they were going to call off for his crucifixion how would you expect jesus to speak to the jews here you would to expect him to be angry or, har- or harsh with them speak to them harshly severely To understand how jesus said these words because there's actually something pretty significant here that we do not see very many times uh, elsewhere in the gospels jesus repeated a name there are only a few instances of that taking place he repeated the title jerusalem and it's significant each time a name is repeated So instead of jumping into these verses, we're going to look at the other times that Jesus said names twice so that we could understand the significance behind that and develop an appreciation because each time Jesus said a name twice, he seemed to use the same tone. There are many similarities in each of those examples, and it's going to give us a good idea how he said these words to the Jews because he used the same tone each time repeating names. And there's one other thing i want to mention about these examples of names being repeated before we look at them it always it always seemed to involve people who were in vulnerable positions of failure but who in the future were going to recover so let me say that one more time whenever jesus spoke to people and repeated their name they were in a position of failure they were being gently rebuked but they were going to recover in the future and this brings us to lesson one Jesus repeated people's names when they failed but would recover. Jesus repeated people's names when they failed but would recover. And with that, go and turn a little to the left to Luke 10, a few chapters to the left to Luke 10. I'm going to go through many of these passages quickly. I believe we're familiar with them. Here's the first instance of Jesus using someone's name twice. Luke 10, we'll start at verse 38. It says, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet, and Mary was listening to Jesus's teaching. Verse 40, but Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to Jesus while he was teaching. And imagine this, and she said to him, so she interrupts him, and she says, Lord, do you not care That my sister has left me to serve alone, tell her then to help me. What are two things that Martha did right there? (laughs) She criticized Jesus, implied that he's insensitive or uncaring, and she commanded him, or she gave him something. She told him what to do, she gave him a command tell my sister to do this. Verse 41 The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her now let me just ask you how do you think jesus spoke to martha when he repeated her name here i think gently i think kindly i don't think he said this angrily to her even though what she interrupted him she criticized him said that he didn't care that mary was mistreating her and ordered him to do something tell my sister to help me i still think he spoke gently to her i think he i believe he felt sorry for her seeing her serving with such a a bad attitude now as far as martha recovering she did turn to the right to john 12. we'll be doing a little more flipping around this morning than normal the next book after luke john chapter 12. this is about one year later So we get to see if Martha recovered from Jesus' rebuke. John 12, verse 1. Again, we'll go quickly. Six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was this is uh mary and martha's brother whom jesus had raised from the dead so they gave a dinner for him there, probably celebrating what christ had done very thankful to him martha served and lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table Now let's just do some simple math here okay we've got the 12 disciples we've got jesus we've got uh martha we've got uh mary i mean how many people is is martha serving here about 15 right she's serving about 15 people look at verse 3. Mary took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor, right? Because Judas really cared about the poor, right? When you're about to think that, the uh, author here, John, corrects you. He said this not because he cared about the poor, But because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag he used to help himself to what was put into it jesus said leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial for the poor you always have with you but you do not always have me now this account taking place less than a year after what we just read in luke 10 has many similarities to the previous account for example jesus is back in the home of mary martha and lazarus again where is mary again same place we saw her before she's again at jesus's feet although she's not listening to his teaching she's still engaging in another act of devotion and what's martha back doing again she's back serving again and again you've even got jesus defending mary's behavior previously jesus defended mary to martha and now jesus defends mary to judas and i want to ask you a question since Martha is serving again, and Mary is showing her devotion again, what else would we expect? We would expect Jesus to rebuke Martha again like he did before, but there are two reasons he didn't. First, instead of teaching, Jesus was eating. So in the previous account, Jesus said that there was something better for her to choose to, as wonderful as serving is, there's a time when worshiping or listening to Christ's teaching is even better than serving. But in this instance, in John 10, there was nothing better for Martha to choose. There was nothing better for her to do than to serve. Second, Martha was serving with the right what this time? Yeah, she had the right attitude. She had the right heart. She's not overwhelmed. She's not feeling sorry for herself. She's not anxious. She's not annoyed with, with uh, the Lord or anyone else. And so it seems that Jesus rebuked her, and she recovered well from this. Now, our second example, turn back to Luke Luke 22 trying to keep these places we turn fairly close together the previous book Luke chapter 22. and here's the context and if you can appreciate the context for this it truly magnifies what actually took place in Luke 22 verses 1 through 23 Jesus says that he's going to be betrayed now we're most familiar with which individual denying that he will betray jesus peter he denies that he'll betray jesus he denies that he's going to deny jesus and then in verses 24 but the reason i mention that is peter is uh, first in our minds associated with declaring his loyalty to christ but the fact is all of the disciples fled all of the disciples denied christ by their actions and all of the disciples denied that they would be the ones to betray jesus and then after jesus makes this prediction which you think would create a moment of humility for the disciples what do they begin arguing about of all things who is the greatest in verses 24 through 30. we're picking up right after that in verse 31. Peter had boldly declared he 'd never betray Christ, and Jesus responds in verse thirty one and he says, "Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned against strengthen your brothers. Now, if you pause here. Being called Simon could surprise you. You could say, well, I thought we were talking about Peter. If Simon's name has been changed, why did, Peter, why did Jesus refer to him this way? Being called Simon was a reminder to Peter of what? The previous man that he was. A name change in scripture always reflects or contrasts the old man with the new man. And this should have been a strong reminder to Peter that he could still be Simon or would still be Simon at times. And so Peter point, Jesus points that out to him. He tells Peter that he's going to deny him three times. And how do you think that Jesus said this to Peter when he repeated his name? I think he said it kindly. I think he rebuked him, but I think he did so gently. Uh, although he he obviously could have felt as betrayed by Peter as he did by Judas. I don't think that Jesus was any harsher with Peter than he was with Judas when Judas betrayed him with a kiss. And then Jesus even goes on so far as to say, when you recover from this, implying that he will, you need to go on and you need to use what you've experienced to strengthen other brothers it kind of reminds me of psalm 51 where david recovers from his sin and then he prays that he can go on to strengthen others or help i mean none of us want to sin none of us want to uh, fail uh, especially not in any sort of miserable way like david or peter did but one of the blessings that can be produced from that is the credibility or opportunity to minister to people in ways that we wouldn't be able to had we not engaged in that sin this isn't any sort of, defense of sinning. But it is pointing out that if God grants us repentance and recovery from that, one of the best ways that that can be used for good is to use that sin to minister to others and strengthen them, which is what Jesus said Peter should do here. And I'll just ask this. We're not going to flip to any verses in Acts, but did Peter recover well from this rebuke and then failure that follows? Absolutely. I mean, he's contrasted with Judas who failed and stayed down peter picked himself up he recovers and he goes on to be the leader of the apostles in the early church the third example turn to acts chapter nine acts chapter nine this is fall fall this is saul's famous conversion on the road to damascus again we'll go through these verses pretty quickly verse one but saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest, and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, which was the early title for Christianity, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, so he's heading to Damascus so that he can arrest, uh, persecute, even murder Christians— he, suddenly this light from heaven shines around him, verse 4. He falls to the ground. He hears a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Judas, or I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So even now you say, well, why, did, why did Jesus say that um, Saul or Paul was persecuting him when he was simply persecuting Christians? Because to persecute Christians is to persecute the body of christ or to persecute him persecute christ himself and so jesus lets saul know that he's doing this and when Je- and when jesus calls out from heaven to saul here repeats his name how do you think he did so i think he did so gently I, despite the fact that saul had been persecuting him which jesus told him twice i don't think he spoke harshly to him and did saul recover from this after this rebuke he recovered incredibly well. He's the most prominent man in the New Testament. He's the author of more books than anyone else. He's the most prominent, even if Peter was the leader of the apostles, Saul or Paul was the most prominent apostle. Now, with this familiarity, with Jesus repeating people's names, turn back to Luke 13. Turn back to Luke 13:34 for this fourth instance of Jesus repeating names. So verse 34, Jesus says, O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. And you can just hear the heart of Christ here, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Now, how does it seem Jesus felt about the jews refusal to repent and come to him he seems sad he seems filled with sorrow one commentator said intense emotion unfathomable pathos not a word we use often it simply means sadness finds its expression in the repetition of the word jerusalem and this brings us to lesson two sorrow is a christ-like response to sin sorrow is a christ-like response to sin Now, I can't say sorrow is the only response to sin because what other responses do we see from our Lord regarding sin elsewhere in the Gospels? We see sorrow here, but that's definitely not the only way that Jesus responded to sin. How did he respond other times? There was other times that we saw anger there's at least i believe it's uh we we know we we assume jesus was angry in the temple when he turned over the tables when the money changers were ripping people off and making the temple a house of thieves it doesn't say that but when jesus is flipping tables over and whipping people you assume he was angry But I believe it's in Luke 6 when he was in the synagogue and the religious leaders did not want him to heal that man with the withered hand. And it says that Jesus looked around with anger at them. He was angry at their hard-heartedness. So we can't say sorrow is the only response, but it is one of the responses. And it's the response that we see here at this moment. He seems sorrowful, which surprises me considering how the Jews had acted and would continue to act in the future. Now, if we have a heart like Christ, when we learn about people's sin we might be angry but we should also experience an amount of sorrow and probably whose sin should we have the most sorrow over our own it's very easy to um, be angry or sorrowful over other people's sin but hopefully we would have the most anger or sorrow reserved for our own sin this past week i read about a pastor who had learned that his friends had committed uh, adultery and the pastor got the news and he's very angry toward this friend. He goes to the friend's, he, he plan, he's going to go to the friend's house and he's planning to get there and just strongly rebuke this friend and chew him out for the way that he's acted, lecture him, um, uh, you know, repeatedly ask, how could you do something like this? But he said that when he arrived and he looked at his friend, the only thing that he could do was weep. He couldn't do anything else but cry over what his friend had done, just tears. Now, interestingly, the pastor also said that it was his own sorrow, not the man's sorrow, but his own sorrow over the friend's sin that ended up breaking that man's heart and producing repentance in his life. And I, the reason this stuck with me was I tend to think that if people are going to repent, and I'm not saying that there's not a place for rebuke, and I'm not saying that there's not a place for anger, but it really stood out to me that what seemed to produce sor- repentance in this man's life was witnessing the sorrow of his friend over that man's sin versus the strong rebuke or anger or hostility that we would expect would be benefit that man the most after doing something so evil. Now, just like the pastor's sorrow led to this man's repentance we would hope that Christ's sorrow is what going to lead to the jews repentance but that wasn't the case look at the last four words of the verse the last four words of the verse you were not willing so you've got this contrast here at the beginning of the verse you've got jesus saying how often would i have and then the end of the verse you were not willing so Jesus's willingness to protect them is being contrasted with their unwillingness to come to him now let me pause for a moment and then I'll and then I'll get back to the verse a little parenthetical moment here in the sermon and maybe some of you will relate to this or maybe you this is your you you currently find yourself in in this situation soon after I became a Christian I um, was introduced to God's sovereignty not something that i had thought much about prior to becoming a christian the idea that god was uh, to say he's sovereign is to say that he's absolutely in control of everything that happens and i also believe that man was a free moral agent and this created this dilemma in my mind how god could be sovereign how man could be a free moral agent how these could be uh, true because if god is completely sovereign then man cannot be a free moral agent if man's a free moral agent if you're going to tell me man has free will then you can't tell me that god is completely in control of everything because there are some number of things that man's doing that must go outside God's control then. And so <clears throat> it seemed like every time but obviously, uh, the reason I'm telling you this, is the Bible presents both of these as truths. There are a mountain of verses about the free moral agency of man, and there are a mountain of verses about the sovereignty of God. And I encounter these as I'm reading through the Bible. And so anytime that I met someone that I had confidence in their maturity or understanding of God's word, I pressed them to explain this dilemma to me. I can't tell you the number of conversations I had where once I believed in someone's spiritual maturity, I'd hit them with this question. You know, explain to me how God could be sovereign, a man could be a free moral agent, and I finally reached the point that I just stopped asking people <laughs> this question. I never really heard an answer that, that satisfied me uh, and just embraced or understood that God's word taught both of these, presented both as true, and that I would embrace both of them. Now let me just give you two verses uh, and if you happen to be at sunday school this morning you're already introduced to one of them i thought jameson did a good job discussing the sort of aha moment he had with first corinthians 15 10. paul says by the grit and i mentioned these two verses there's they're just two of many examples i could give you i'm not giving you a bunch of verses about god's sovereignty. A bunch of verses about man's free moral agency i'm giving you two examples of verses that discuss god's sovereignty and man's free moral agency in the same verse first corinthians 15 10 paul says by the grace of god i am what i am and his grace toward me was not in vain so paul attributes his spiritual maturity or he attributes who he is to god's grace but then listen to this On the contrary, so it's almost like Paul starts having an argument with himself, right? He says, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. So previously, it's God working hard. Now he's talking about how hard he's working. And then he says, though it was not I. So now he goes back again in the same verse. You're just kind of like, Paul, can you make up your mind here? I mean, what is going on? Is this God working? Is it you working? I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. It almost sounds like he doesn't know what he's talking about. Kind of like when Paul talks about who's living his life. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Another example, Colossians one twenty nine. Paul says, for this I toil, struggling. Now, when Paul says, I'm toiling, I am struggling, who does it sound like is working? Paul. But then he says, with his energy, that he powerfully works within me so right when Paul starts talking about how hard he's working he starts talking about how hard the Lord is working he begins by talking about his effort and then he concludes by talking about God's effort through him now my finite mind on this side of heaven I can't imagine think about something for a moment on the sixth day which is when all the animals were created and Adam was created and he was able to name all of them what must his mind have been like at that time unaffected by sin to be able to do all that adam had done on that day now how many of us have minds like that today we don't because they have been affected by sin and we see we can see some of the greater effects of sin as people get older forget things whether alzheimer is introduced into their lives or dementia so all of us have these very limited minds limited ability to understand uh spiritual truths because of the sin that's been that we that we engage in and that has been introduced by our father adam And so with these finite minds we just have to accept that we can't understand this fully i can't reconcile fully god's sovereignty and my free will i just know that they are truths that might seem mutually exclusive but seem to coexist and the reason i'm mentioning this is we're looking at a good example of man using his free will or free moral agency in a terribly ungodly way how does man use his free moral agency in this verse When Jesus says, you were not willing, you've got man resisting the grace of God or the compassion of God. Christ would reach out to him and man would be unwilling to receive it. And the word often, it shows how frequently Jesus was pleading with the Jews to repent, but as often as he was pleading with them, they were not willing to repent. And so the problem was not Jesus's willingness to protect them. Or the problem was not Jesus' willingness to save them, the problem was their hard-heartedness or refusal to repent, or let's say bow their knee to Christ, stubborn, prideful man. And the same is true today. Christ can plead with people to repent. I'll say, or we can preach the gospel to people, but in a sense, when you preach the gospel to someone, who's really pleading with that someone, with that person? Christ is, or the Lord is, it isn't, uh, and that's why we shouldn't take it personally when we present the gospel and it's rejected. You've never been rejected when you've presented the gospel. Nobody has rejected you, that you're not their savior or you're not their potential savior. They are rejecting Christ because he's the one who would save them. And so we have people today, Christ pleads with them through the gospel, they will not repent. How many times have we been convicted of sin? God has revealed an area of weakness or sin in our lives we have been convicted we will not repent now hopefully if this has been the case for us we can be challenged by what happened to the Jews because it's very so so you listen to this and you say wow they weren't willing to repent was that really very serious be challenged by this sobering example from them of what happened because of their unwillingness look at verse 35 behold which would be as a result of their unwillingness your house is forsaken chloe you guys need to be quiet please noah be quiet please it says your house is forsaken what's that referring to what's that referring to when he says your house is forsaken this is looking forward to 70 a.d when the romans came and they destroyed jerusalem in fact think of when it says house think of house, temple, and think of household, household of the Jews. It has a double meaning. It refers to the house or household of the Jews who were going to be slaughtered, but it also refers to the temple itself or the house of God that was going to be destroyed. And then after that, 19 centuries of the Jews being scattered. So I would definitely say that they felt what by God. I mean, look in the verse. Look at the beginning of verse 35 how do you when jesus says this to them how much did they feel this way by god forsaken it's so fitting it's exactly what they were going to experience as a result of their unwillingness so there's an interesting irony here if you follow the flow of this text i can't say this is exactly why jesus chose the animals that he did but he identifies himself as a mother hen which probably flows from jesus calling Herod a what fox chicks need to be protected from foxes we even talk about a fox that's in the hen house a hen gathers its chicks under its wings when they're in danger and the jews warned jesus that he needed to flee from herod if you think back to last week's sermon or when we read the verses the jews come to jesus the religious leaders and they're telling jesus that who is in danger he is Who's really in danger? The Jews are the ones who are in danger. If they don't repent, the Romans are going to come within a few decades, and they are going to destroy their city and slaughter many of them. They needed to move under the protection of Christ's wings, but they would not, so their house would end up being forsaken. Look at the rest of verse 35. He says, I tell you, you will not see me until you say... Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus says, I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So even though the Jews rejected Jesus, and this is one of the reasons we lifted those examples at the beginning of the sermon, based on what Jesus says here, they are rebuked, but what's going to happen with the Jews in the future? They're going to recover well. There will be a recovery with them, just like there was a recovery with Martha, just like there was a recovery with peter just like there was a recovery with saul and this is a good example of something we should understand read in the bible if you've never heard this before please keep this in mind when you're in the new testament when a new testament author quotes the old testament here's what we tend to think wrongly that the new testament author quoted that old testament verse because that verse just happened to use the wording that this new testament author wanted and we it's almost like we assume that the context of that Old Testament verse is irrelevant, and the New Testament author didn't even have the context of that verse in mind when he quoted that Old Testament verse in the New Testament. If that was the case, then you would have New Testament authors who are the worst violators of one of the primary rules of Bible interpretation, which is what? or three, What are the first three rules? Context, 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 right? And so we're almost thinking that New Testament authors... In quoting Old Testament verses and ignoring the context would be doing exactly what we know every good Bible teacher should not do the truth is that New Testament authors quote Old Testament verses because of their context and when you see that Old Testament verse quoted in the New Testament it's basically the tip of the iceberg that's what you're getting everything below the surface is all of the context that actually further serves to push the point that that author is making and i mention that because what you're seeing here in verse 35 is a premier example of that this is a quote of psalm 118 26 if you can try to have two places in your bible open keep luke 13 open and turn to psalm 118 have psalm 118 and luke 13 open please It'd be great if you can actually look at both of these at the same time. So we're going to pick up at verse 22 because we want to get the context. So Psalm 118. Verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Do we recognize this verse? Yeah, we do. This is one of the most... Um, well-known verses in the New Testament associated with the rejection of Christ, because Christ is that chief cornerstone for the house of God or for the the building of God's people. Verse twenty-three: This is the Lord's doing; it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made; let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord this is what jesus said that they're going to say so this is the quote or this is what luke 13 35 quotes blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord we bless you from the house of the lord now pause here verse 22 is about the cornerstone being rejected that's the context which is what the jews were doing when in jesus's day or during his first coming So that's the context for this verse to be quoted by Christ—that he is that chief cornerstone from verse 22 that's being rejected. But he says that they will say the words of verse 26 in the future. They will say, "Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord." Now look in verse 25 when it says, "Save us." What is that in Hebrew? You do you know this? What is this? What is "save us" in Hebrew? It's the word Hosanna, right? when did the jews yell out hosanna or save us at the triumphal entry it's so at the triumphal entry the jews talking about quote in the old testament they quoted psalm 118 verses 25 and 26 you don't have to turn that but just listen to this this is the triumphal entry john 12 12 the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that jesus was going to jerusalem they took branches of palm trees they went out to meet him you know they lay these on the road and they cry out hosanna or save us they're quoting psalm 118 blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord even the king of israel now here's what's interesting back in luke thirteen thirty-five, and i'm i'm sorry this seems a little technical this morning but here's just just to be clear with you every time i come to god's word or any any preacher comes to god's word we don't have the liberty to jump over technical parts or things that we think might not be as enjoyable for our congregations <laughs> we have as much responsibility to exposit those verses as every other verse that might seem you know more thrilling or interesting But the thing is for the person that's paying attention to this it is truly fascinating and gives us a great window into the working of god's sovereignty in the lives of these jews because in luke 13 35 jesus said that the jews would say the words of psalm 118 26 blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord we know that the jews did say those words at the triumphal entry like we've been talking about now here's the question when jesus said you're going to say these words to me was the fulfillment at the triumphal entry no it definitely was not because jesus knew at that moment that those jews were not saying these words sincerely which is why after the triumphal entry, sometimes some this is only given such a small amount of attention and only luke's gospel what did jesus actually do immediately after the triumphal entry or immediately after being worshipped by all these jews anyone know he wept he wept luke 1941 when he drew near and he saw the city he wept over it saying would that you even you had known on this day the things that make for peace but now they are hidden from your eyes and why did he weep because he knew that the jews are calling out blessed is the name of the lord save us hosanna but within a few days they're going to be calling out what crucify him crucify him crucify him so he knew that their mouths that they were being hypocrites and their mouths were not uttering the words that were going to match what was taking place in their hearts And this is the same heart when jesus and and one of the reasons i want to mention the triumphant tree and jesus weeping over the city is the heart of christ that you see there as he weeps over jerusalem is the same heart of christ that we see in luke 13 when he describes himself as this mother hen that would love nothing more than to bring his chicks under his wings luke 1943 it goes on and jesus says right after weeping he explains why he wept The days will come upon you, your enemies will set up a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They're going to tear you down to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Again, Jesus is referring to 70 AD, and he says, because you've rejected me, despite what you're saying with your mouths, because your hearts are far from me, Rome is going to, because of your unwillingness to come under my protection, Rome is going to come destroy Jerusalem within a few decades because they didn't know when their Messiah, they didn't know. That's what Jesus meant when he said you didn't know the time of your visitation. You didn't really know when your Messiah came. Romans 11.25, now listen to this. So you're saying, well, wait a second, Pastor Scott, didn't you say that the Jews were going to recover well? (laughs) Weren't you saying that the Jews were going to be saved? All you're doing is talking about them rejecting christ and suffering as a result of that listen to this romans eleven twenty five. 25 paul says lest you be wise in your own sight i don't want you to be unaware of this mystery brothers a partial hardening has come upon israel until the fullness of the gentiles comes in or until the last gentile is saved god has allowed the jews to be blinded or remain unsaved so the gospel can come to the Gentiles. Romans 11 explains this in greater detail. But when that last Gentile is saved, the attention is put back on the Jews. And then listen to this. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. All the Jews will be saved as it is written the deliverer will come from Zion, he'll banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. At Jesus' second coming, the Jewish people will welcome him as the Messiah. That is when they will say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, if you briefly look back to lesson one, Jesus repeated people's names when they failed but would recover. And the Jews will recover, but it will not be until far in the future at Christ's second coming. And it's going to be excruciating for them. Listen to the way Zechariah describes it. Zechariah 12:10. Jesus, speaking through the prophet Zechariah, says, "I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me on him whom they have pierced, they shall what? Mourn for him as one mourns for an only child." and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn so jesus says that when he returns at christ's second coming the jews will look up and see him and they will recognize he's the messiah that they pierced or crucified and they will mourn and weep and with such an agony the sort of agony that someone would experience if they lost a child and that was the only child that they had that's how they will mourn and weep and so when jesus returns they will have this terrible revelation that they crucified their messiah now even though we've been talking about the jews coming to the revelation that jesus is the messiah let me make this real straightforward and simple who is going to come to the revelation that jesus is the messiah we're talking about the jews coming to that revelation but who is going to come to the revelation that jesus is the messiah okay i'll read a few verses and then ask you again isaiah 45 23 to me every knee shall bow every tongue shall swear allegiance romans 14 11, as i live says the lord every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to god philippians 2 10 at the name of jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth so let me ask you again we were talking about the jews coming to the revelation that jesus is the messiah but who will come to the revelation that jesus is the messiah everyone Everyone who has ever lived, every person throughout all of human history, there is nobody who will not know at some point that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, how can it be that every knee is going to bow to Christ when we know that there are many or even more people who reject him than repent and put their faith in him? I kind of shy away from saying accept him. I've never been super comfortable with that language of accepting Christ. It seems really sort of passive. I mean, Christ died for you, and you either repent and put your faith in him, but to accept him, I'm not I never I don't it always cringe a little when I hear that language, not to dis, not to seem to rebuke anyone who has said that. I've said that before, but you don't really accept Christ. What happens is He died on a cross and you either repent of your sins and you look to him to be saved and you cry out for mercy or you don't. But for the people who don't do that, it still says that their knee will bow to him. And how is that? There are two possibilities, two ways the knee is bowed, willingly and unwillingly. And this brings us to lesson three. We choose how we bow our knee to Christ. We choose how we bow our knee to Christ. every person chooses how their knee will be will bow to christ interesting that there are two other times that i could find in the gospels when names are repeated and the two other times in the gospels that names are repeated they actually serve to illustrate those two categories of people those who will bow the knee willingly and those who will bow the knee unwillingly first when jesus is on the cross matthew 27:46 About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, and he said, Eli, Eli, Lamas the Bakhtani, that is, and he repeats, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was willing to die on a cross and experience the wrath of his father in our place. He was willing to be forsaken from his father so that we could be reconciled to that same father. Now, for those people who have repented and put their faith in Christ, when we see Christ, how will we bow our knee? Willingly, out of incredible gratitude and thankfulness, out of praise and out of worship, rejoicing over what he has done for us. Or to be clear, believers will rejoice at Christ's second coming because it means seeing our Lord, the Savior who died for us. Who saved us from the punishment we deserve now the other instance in the gospels of a name repeated twice it's in matthew 7 jesus said on that day many will say to me lord lord did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name and then i'll declare to them i never knew you depart from me you workers of lawlessness now these are people who didn't repent we know that because he said that they're workers of lawlessness filled with remorse regret." Now they will still bow the knee to christ but they will do so out of submission they will be forced to do so every person will bow the knee to christ and they choose how they do so they do it willingly in this life or they do it unwillingly when they're forced to in the next life now i want to conclude with this something that's been on my mind since we began this passage and just just give me a moment and kind of be honest here How do you feel about Jesus identifying himself with a mother hen? Is it surprising at all a little bit? Or let me say it like this. Does it instill you with a lot of confidence? Not quite for me. There are some other animals in Scripture that come to mind that I might expect Jesus to compare himself with. For example, when God powerfully delivered Israel from Egypt by unleashing all of those plagues, what did he compare himself with? exodus 19:4. you yourselves have seen what i did to the egyptians and how i bore you on eagles wings and brought you to myself a powerful majestic eagle or then most famously jesus is compared with what which definitely instills some confidence in us the lion of the tribe of judah now compared to that powerful majestic eagle or the lion the mother hen doesn't give me a lot of confidence <laughs> i don't know if i'm alone on that now as i thought about it a mother hen will and this is why a mother hen doesn't instill me with a lot of confidence because a mother hen is willing to stand between her chicks and danger with no fangs with no claws with not even the wings of an eagle that will let you know her fly away i don't know if an eagle could fly away with any of its young anyway but there's just nothing really about a mother hen that struck me as as powerful or significant It seems there's only one thing that a mother hen can put between her chicks and danger, and that's what? Her body. If you want to harm her young, you must kill her first. She is willing to sacrifice her body to protect her children. And in a sense, when I realized that, I thought, what a beautiful picture of Christ not ripping out the fangs and claws or or wings to fly away, but instead willing to sacrifice his body to protect us from the danger of God's wrath. Jesus said, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And I picture this hen just stretching out her wings to cover her chicks, right? And I just think about Christ stretching out his arms on that cross to cover us from the punishment that our sins deserve. I want to be under those wings. I want to be under those arms. I want to be covered from the wrath that my sins deserve. Christ wants to protect you. You are going to bow your knee to him. There's no question about that. You just have to decide whether you want to do that willingly in this life or unwillingly in the next life you must decide whether you want to be able to rejoice at Christ's second coming or weep and mourn that you rejected him like the Jews as they're described in Zechariah 12. Now, I will be up right after service. If you have any questions about anything I've shared this morning or if I can pray for you in any way, I'd consider it a privilege to speak with you. Father, we thank you for these verses. It's been a joy for me to study them over these last few weeks i'm looking forward to to digging into luke 14 this coming week but i pray that we could take the truths from this previous chapter these verses with us and just think about that mother hen willing to sacrifice its body and how christ says that he would like nothing more than to cover us with his wings lord and so we thank you for his sacrifice what he was willing to do for us if there's anyone who has not bowed the knee to christ Uh, i pray they would be convicted about that that revelation would be made clear and that they would bow on this side of heaven that they would repent and put their faith in him so that they're not forced to bow to him for uh, against their will in a sense in the next life and we ask these things in jesus name amen